As you're settling into your seats this morning, um, I'm going to dive into the message and the ushers are going to receive the offering. So if you brought that with you, you can take that out. And um, for the past couple of months, if you've been with us, you know we've been looking at uh, a couple of letters that were written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Corinth. These are called the Corinthian letters, First and Second Corinthians. And this has been a series that we've called A People in a Place. And we've been talking about what it looks like to live out the implications of the gospel. What does it look like for us to live out the reality, the truth of the gospel in a particular location? And one of the things that we've drawn a parallel to is that the Corinthian city was a very complicated, complex culture. It was a complicated city. And um, we've been looking at how they lived out the gospel there or are being called to live out the gospel and really layering that over our own lives in our current context, that we live in complicated cities. We live in a complicated culture. And so we've been talking about what it looks like for us to live this out. Now, today's gonna be our last one in this series. We're gonna bring this series in for a landing. In fact, next week, uh, we're gonna start a new series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is for many people kind of a confusing Old Testament book. And I love talking about some of those things that are challenging or confusing in the Bible and making sense of them. And so starting next week, we're gonna start uh, a series in that book, which I, I really love. Um, but today, I I want to bring this in for a landing. And, uh, and in order to do that, it's sort of like for me, sometimes the question, especially the way we've approached this, we've sort of jumped around. We started the series in 1 Corinthians 13. So that was kind of a weird way to start. Um, the way we've jumped around, I just thought, how should we end this? And I was really looking for uh, an exclamation point. Is there a picture? Is there, uh, is there some sort of word? Is there some imagery? Is there something, someplace in the middle of these letters that really serves as sort of the, the pinnacle of what we've been talking about? And, uh, and so looking over the text, I discovered something in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that I want to make our focus today and really allow this to be the exclamation point of all that we've looked at. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 or 14, um, we're going to start reading there. And if you have a Bible and you're turning there, I'll talk for just a minute. Uh, if you're waiting for the words on the screen, I'll talk about those in just a second. But let me just say this. I believe that what we're going to look at today speaks volumes volumes about the kind of people that we are called to be living out the Jesus way in our culture today. Um, I want to read this with you and then we'll unpack it. It begins in verse 14. Paul says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So there's two images that are presented to here, and both of them um, are meaningful for us. One of them affirms something that's true about us, and the other one informs something about the way that we live our lives. So let me talk about these two images or pictures that were given. Um, first, Paul says that Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. When he said those words to the Corinthian church, those would have been a recognizable uh, set of words. That's a recognizable phrase, and it's actually being ripped right from the Roman playbook. 
Um, the Roman Empire during this time period, they were conquering different lands and, and taking different countries as their own, and these generals would be sent off to war. Well, when the generals would return from war, they would come back to their cities, and there would be these triumphal processions, like a victory parade, in which they would display all the power and all the value, all the wealth of Rome. They would put that on display in the city. And the Apostle Paul says that Jesus leads us into this place where we live with this same sense. We live with this triumphal sense. Paul says, because of Jesus, we move through our days. We move through the halls of our school. We move through the streets of our neighborhood. We move through the cubicle farm at work. We move like those generals moved through the streets. There's a victory that has been experienced. In fact, later on in Romans chapter eight, Paul would allude to this again, and he would say that we are more than conquerors. This idea that there's a victory that we have, and because of this victory that we understand in Christ, it just causes us to move differently through the places where we're called to move, the places where we live and breathe and do life. So that's the first image. There is a victory that we have in Christ, and we move in that confidence. But then the second picture is the one I really love. It's the one I want to focus on for a moment because it's beautiful and it's also drawn from the same event. He says this, let me just say it again. He says, Jesus says that, that through us, or Paul says Jesus through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere and that we are the, re, are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So let me just explain that when these victory processionals happened, there would often be, uh, there would be incense that would be burning in the streets. They would burn incense. And so there was this smell of victory. We've heard that phrase before. Um, not only that, the, the different generals, when they went off to different lands and they conquered places with exotic spices, they would bring back those spices and they would open them up and they would parade them through the street. And so the, the smell of the spices would rise up and people would, would make, to, they would put together uh, various strands of flowers. They would create these wreaths of flowers and, and botanical beautiful things and they would throw them at the, at the general's feet. And so as they marched the streets, there were all of these smells that would rise up, the spices and the incense and the fragrance. So the processional was fragrant. There was a fragrance to the processional, sort of like this. And by the way, I've done this in two other services and we haven't set off the fire sprinklers yet. Listen to the concern in the room. I love it. So it's sort of like this. Wherever the processional went, the scent, the fragrance was carried with it. The smell of this victory, the smell of this presence was carried with it. And so as the, as the processional took place, as they paraded through the streets, the incense would fill the air. It would fill the nostrils of the people who were watching. And so there was this sense, even when it had gone, there was still this lingering sense of its presence. This is what the Apostle Paul says our lives are like. 
You are like a fragrant offering. You are this fragrant sense. You move through your days in this same way. You leave a fragrant aroma when you enter into the halls of your school, when you enter into the halls of your work, when you move through the neighborhood that you live in, you do this. There is this fragrant aroma that you leave behind. There is the knowledge of God that is there because you were there. People get this sense like there's something different going on in this person's life. There's something different about this kind of person. In fact, this whole thing really answers one of the biggest questions that I hear people asking all the time. Uh, one of the repeated themes I've heard over the years, people have come to me, they've said, what do you, you know, can you answer this question for me? People have preached sermons on this. There are hundreds of books written on this. Personally, my own conversations, my whole life has been littered with this. People asking, how do I know God's will for my life? Right? People ask that. I've especially heard it around certain decisions that people are making, like decisions about school, decisions about work, decisions about dating, decisions about marriage, decisions about where to live. Some people even decisions about what to drive. They'll still ask this question, right? You get the point of this. In fact, this is the way we do it. If we think the decision is big enough, then we go, I better take this one to God. Right? It's sort of up to us whether or not we're going to pursue God's will, but we go, this is kind of a big one. I think I'm going to ask God about this. Should I or shouldn't I? What is God's will? How do you determine God's will for your life? In other words, how do you, and I'm going to use a very Christian sounding word, how do you discern God's will? That, that idea of discerning is that we're using our intellect. We're turning ourselves or tuning ourselves spiritually and we're saying, how do I discern? How do I determine what God's will is? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I actually have the answer for you today. Here it is. This is his overarching, far-reaching, life-changing, plan-altering will for your life. God's will for your life is that you would be the aroma of Christ. That's it. What does God want from you? He wants this. He wants your life to be like this. He wants people's experience with you to be like this. There is this fragrant aroma that is experienced. God's will. You say, well, no, 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 hold on. But I, I want something that helps me make tough decisions. Or how do I interpret the events of my life? How do I navigate complicated circumstances? And I'll just say it again. God's will for your life and God's will for my life is that you and I would become so much like Jesus that in the places we go, people would get a whiff of him. And the only way that's ever going to happen is if we become like him. There, there are really explicit references that make this clear. And, and just one of them I want to give you is in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. This is really good. I, wanna, I want you to see this. Paul's writing to the church in Rome and he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Now, there's a lot that's going on in this single solitary verse, but let me just focus on what applies to the conversation we're having here. Basically, you can sum up the first part by saying this, that those who know God, those whose eyes have been opened, those who have been awakened to the reality of who Jesus is, those who understand all that's going on, they are a people who are to be conformed to the image, the likeness, the pattern, the model of his son. 
In other words, your life begins to look like whose life? The answer in church is always Jesus, right? His life. Your life starts to look like his life. And if your life looks like his life, then that means you leave the aroma of Jesus. That's what it means. Which, by the way, is so life-giving. It brings so much meaning to so much of our, of our experience. It, it can be so hard. I mean, I think sometimes you look at your life and the journey of life that we're living can be really complicated. Amen? Like, it's really difficult sometimes to, to interpret the circumstances of our life, to navigate the complexities, to make tough decisions. But when this, it, when you come to the place where you genuinely accept this truth and you start living out this reality, then the tough decisions that you're facing, they become much more simple. And, and the understanding you have about your life, it becomes much more clear. Now you find yourself stopping and looking at situations and circumstances and saying, well, what's my role in this? What's my role in this? How am I supposed to move through this situation? Who am I supposed to be in this situation? Well, the answer is, what does it look like to be a pleasing aroma in this moment? That's how you answer it. What do I do here? Well, how do you become a pleasing aroma? How do people get a taste of who Jesus is through you? So, so does God care about whether you go to this school or that school, or does God care about whether you take this job or that job or marry this person or that person or live in this neighborhood or that neighborhood? Does God care about whether or not you drive a Ford or a Toyota? The answer, only as much as it relates to those decisions either reflecting Jesus or shaping you into someone who looks more like Jesus. Are you with me on this? That's why that decision matters. So, so ultimately, we can understand Romans 8, 29 this way. The point isn't that you know more about Jesus. The point is that you become more like Jesus. You become more like him. In fact, one of the interesting things about Jesus is that when people talk about Jesus, they don't talk about what Jesus believed. You, you notice this? You don't have people analyzing Jesus and then drawing um, conclusions around the belief system of Jesus. That doesn't happen. People don't talk about what Jesus believed. They talk about how he behaved, right? You, you don't hear people talk about Jesus's theology. You hear people talk about the way he conducted himself. You hear people talk about the way that he treated somebody that was unexpected. You hear the way that Jesus talked to someone that nobody talked to. You hear about how Jesus loved somebody that didn't feel loved. That's what you hear about with Jesus. That's what people talk about when they talk about Jesus, which means naturally that if we are being conformed into the pattern that follows after him, then the same should be true of us, right? In other words, when people talk about us, they shouldn't be sitting around saying, well, based on these five things I've witnessed, I think they believe this. They, at least I hope, I hope that they would be talking about how they've been treated by us. People should look at us and they should smell something. When we leave the room, there should be this fragrance, like there's something familiar, there's something beautiful, there's something different about this person. That's what's being described. In fact, I really love something Paul David Tripp wrote. Listen to this. Uh, in a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, he said, the church is not a theological classroom. 
It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. That's it, right? Where flawed people, anybody else besides me flawed to here this morning? <laughs> right? Okay. Get some amens to that, some high hands raised. We gather as flawed people to love and know him better. Why? So we can learn to do what? Have perfect theology. No. Have all the right answers every time someone has a question. No. He says to love others as he designed, that through us he might spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's the word. And in case you were wondering, just like everything else that we've looked at in this series, this practice, this, this movement to us being these kinds of people, this does not exactly look the way our culture looks. It doesn't exactly align with our upbringing. It doesn't exactly fit our bias. Like a few years ago, somebody um, sent me a video of this guy. He's got a, a YouTube channel called Smarter Every Day. And years ago, he built this bike that was a backwards bike where um, he put gears in the headset so that when he was riding it, when he went to turn left, the bike actually went to the right. And when he went, when he went to the right, the bike actually went to the left. And so it was this like crazy thing that, that he created. And then he filmed himself over the course of months learning how to ride the bike. And it was this insane experience because at the very beginning, he could literally own the, ride the bike a couple of feet and he was falling off. And he has all these videos of falling, falling, falling. And then over time, he begins to navigate this and figure it out. Now, the whole reason he was doing it was to give an explanation or an example of our own neuroplasticity, the ability of our neurology to adapt and make changes. And what he was trying to do was change something that had become automatic and turn it into something else, which we've all heard the phrase, it's like learning how to ride a bike, right? We say that because there's this sense that once you learn how to ride a bike, you never have to learn again. Your body figures it out and you do it in automatic. You don't have to think about all the different things you're doing. It took him eight months to learn how to effectively ride the backwards bike. And he said the most challenging thing he had to do was unlearn how to ride a normal bike. And then hilariously, he realized at the end of the eight months, he had to forget the backwards bike and go back to riding another bike. And it took him months again to learn how to ride a bike again because he had done this to his brain. He had he'd done this exercise. See, we develop patterns. Um, we, we develop habits. We develop ways of responding to circumstances and situations. We have ways of treating people that become effortless over time. It's like riding a bike. But what Jesus is calling us to, what we're being challenged to by Paul, is oftentimes the opposite of what we've learned. So we hear that God wants us to leave the aroma of Jesus but that means it's likely that we're gonna have to undo some old patterns. We're gonna have to relearn some new patterns. Becoming like Jesus is like learning to ride a backwards bike. Are you with me on this? Especially as it, especially as it relates to the way that we live towards other humans. There, there's a way that our culture and our history and our experience has trained us to treat people. And then there's Jesus's way. <laughs> and it is so different. 
Which, by the way, that makes sense of so many things and, and I think brings an exclamation point to, to the words of Jesus in so many different ways when you begin to hear this through this lens. For example, if you flip over in your Bible to Luke chapter 6, I want to spend some time looking at this because it's such a good example of it. Um, let me just give you some, some background to this before you get there. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to say some things to his disciples and you can hear the gears grinding to a halt. He says some stuff that in their ears, and honestly, in our ears, it is really difficult to hear. Um, you can hear this is the opposite of how we function as people. But let me just give you some context. Right before this, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus has been doing some interesting things. He was um, cleansing people. He was healing people that were considered unclean. So he's touching people that were untouchable. He's loving people that were unlovable. In uh, Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his disciples. Matthew was a tax collector. The occupational hazard of being a tax collector then and a tax collector today is that nobody likes tax collectors. Amen, right? Nobody likes taxes in the history of the world. And so he's loving this guy that's unlovable. And then as you move into chapter six, you see more of Jesus sort of being this rule breaker. He's getting the attention of the people that he encountered. And then there's this moment where Jesus is gonna teach them how to ride this backwards bike. And he lays it on them. And he radically reforms how we live towards others. Listen to verse 27 of Luke chapter six. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them." Do you hear this? Love your enemies. Jesus doesn't use some obscure word for love that means something other than love. He says love. <laughs> love your enemies. Do good to the people that hate you. Are there people that hate you? Jesus says do good to them. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. That's the pattern that Jesus is calling us to follow. That's what leaves the fragrant aroma. And then he explains in verse 32, he says, listen, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. In other words, he's saying, that's how everybody does it, right? And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, even, that's what everybody does. Everybody lends to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You hear what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, listen, if you love and you do good and you lend to those who do the same because it's reciprocated, he's calling us out here. Because this is what we've learned, right? Love people that love you, give to those that give back. Like that's kind of the pattern, right? He, love me and I'll love you. Treat me with respect and I'll treat you with respect. It's a pattern of our world. You want something from me? Well, make sure that I get something from you. And Jesus says, there's nothing special about that. 
That's the way everybody does it. That's just human nature. Everybody loves this way. This is the system that everyone follows. And then he continues in verse 37 and listen to this. He says, judge not and you'll not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. So he talks about judgment and he talks about condemnation and he talks about forgiveness and he talks about generosity. Which by the way, we live in a culture that says, if you judge me, I'm gonna judge you. We throw it back in people's faces. In fact, we have this phrase we use all the time. We say things like, who do you think you are? Who do they think they are? You know, the moment that those words leave our lips, what we have done is drawn a judgment. We've judged them and we've concluded that they are not worthy of judging us. And so in just that moment, we participate in the same sort of judgment. We tell them, you have no business judging me. Same thing with condemnation. Condemn me? Oh, you're going to look at me? I'm going to tell you what you did. We do that, right? That sounds like about every argument I've ever been in, right? Somebody comes to me and they confront me about something and what do I do? Well, you're going to talk to me about my brokenness. I'm going to talk to you about your brokenness. Let's go back and forth. Which, by the way, that is just a brilliant way to function relationally, isn't it? Like how many of us ever like by judging or condemning, like throwing things back at each other, how many of us that's ever worked for relationally? Like, like you do that to each other and at the end, like someone comes to you and they confront you and you just throw stuff back in their face and they go, you know, that's really good. You want to go get ice cream? Said no one ever, right? The only way you break the cycle is forgiveness. It's forgiveness, it's generosity, it's receiving and then giving. That's what Jesus is saying. It's having this attitude of, I wanna be the person that walks in the room and brings this life and light and joy. I love the perspective Henry Nouwen brought to this subject in a book called Life of the Beloved. He says this, this is such a beautiful quote. He says, when we claim and constantly reclaim the truth of being the chosen ones, we soon discover within ourselves a deep desire to reveal to others their own chosenness. Instead of making us feel that we're better, more precious or valuable than others, our awareness of being chosen opens our eyes to the chosenness of others. That is the great joy of being chosen, the discovery that others are chosen as well. Then he goes on, he says, once we deeply trust that we ourselves are precious in God's eyes, we are able to recognize the preciousness of others and their unique places in God's heart. This week I was hanging out with a friend and we were on our way to, to have dinner together and um, right before we were at the restaurant that we were going to, he, we were just sharing life. We were talking about different things that were going on and, and I don't know if he sensed something in my mood. I don't know what what I said or what I did, but at one point he looks at me and he goes, there's something I need to tell you. I got to tell you something. And he was really intense about it. And I was like, oh boy, what's it going to be, you know? And he goes, no, no, it's not bad. But I just, in a couple of minutes, I'll tell you. And so we got to the restaurant, we sat down at the table and we're sitting there, we're kind of chit-chatting a little bit more. He goes, okay, now I want to tell you, I want to tell you what I feel like I'm supposed to tell you. And my friend just began to smother me with encouragement. 
He just looks at me and he goes, you know, I don't think you, I don't know that you see yourself as clearly. And I want to tell you what I see when I see you. When I see you walk in a room, this is what I see. And he just began, I thought like, are we going to go like play football or something? Like you're pumping me up right now. Like what's going on? It was like the biggest pep talk that I've ever got. But it was like in that moment, I could sense he's so aware of his chosenness that he just wanted to remind me of mine, right? Just building me up. Which brings me to how Jesus closes this conversation in Luke 6, verse 43. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. And then this sentence that you might have heard before, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I've been asking myself that question this week. What is abundant in my heart? My mouth tells what's abundant in my heart. What is in your heart to great measure That's a better way to think about that. If we could take a look, if you could somehow take a self-examination, what would you see that's abundant in your heart? According to Jesus, there's an aroma. There's an aroma that the people around us should experience, which means that there's one thing that should be in great abundance in our hearts. Paul talked about it in Romans 13, verse 8. He said, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So ultimately, it all boils down to one thing. Love. Doing what's best for another person, no matter what it costs you. Or doing what's best for others, no matter what they've done for you. And that... That changes the world, amen? It's a contrast. It's not fighting fire with fire. Remember the untouchables? Remember Sean Connery and the untouchables? Remember that moment, Kevin? Remember when he says, if you come at us with a knife, we'll come at you with a gun. You put one of ours in the hospital, we'll put one of yours in the morgue. You guys remember that? That's called fighting fire with fire. And it doesn't work, which is where we discover the power of the gospel, and what it does in us, because it allows us to be the kind of people who can be a fragrant blessing in the world. So we're gonna take communion together right now. And so if if you had the opportunity to get this as you came in, I want you to take it out and get it ready. And let me continue as as we prepare to take communion together and just say this. I can tell you that I love you. And oftentimes I do. Oftentimes... We end our service, and one of the things I I just love to remind you of is that I, I love you, and I genuinely do. I love you. And you can love me, and you can tell me you love me. That's really good. It's good for you to know I love you, and it's good for me to know that you love me. That's a really good thing. But let me just say this. It is the love of Jesus. It's the abundant, sacrificial, no holds barred, everything I've got, love of Jesus that he has shown me and that he's shown you, that he's shown everyone else. It's that love 
that will actually fill our hearts and allow us to be the kind of people that he's called us to be. And the more you and I, we we fix our sight on the love that Jesus has for us, when he could have judged us, when he could have condemned us, when he chose to forgive us, the more that our sights are set on his incredible love, the more we understand the beauty of the gospel, the more our hearts become full. And the more abundant that love becomes in our hearts, the more we become the people who release the aroma of the radical love of Jesus into the world around us. You know, Jesus um, never asks us to do more than what he's already done for us. Do you see that? He never does that. Whatever he asks of me, he's already done for me. He's shown me the way. And you and I get to be like him. I believe that's much of what's behind the heart of Jesus in instituting this thing called Holy Communion. You know, Jesus gathered with his disciples for a final Passover before the cross. And at that meal, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then after they had eaten the bread, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant, a new covenant of my blood drink and remember me. And then he he called his disciples to do this regularly. And I think it's because he knew without a constant reminder, without a constant returning to his great love, we'd forget how loved we are. And if we ever forget how loved we are, well, then we stop being that beautiful fragrance in the world. So this is about us remembering we are loved so deeply, so beautifully, so wonderfully, in spite of anything that might be happening in your life, Jesus loves you. And if you'll accept, you'll receive, you'll live in that love, you will be the kind of person who leaves the scent of Jesus, amen? So Jesus said, take the bread and give thanks and eat in remembrance of him. Let's eat together. And then he took the cup and he blessed it. So this is the covenant between God and humanity. A covenant is a deal between God and people. It's the operational standards, if you will. It's an agreement that says, this is our relationship together. He took the cup and said, this is now the relationship that you have with God. And he gave thanks and they drank together. Let's drink together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so grateful for you and your love. We're grateful that there is a way that we can walk in a world that is full of condemnation and judgment. We're grateful that you've given us an alternative to entering into it 
participating in it. You've invited us to rise above it and live a completely different kind of life. And Lord, it's your love. It's what you've shown us on the cross that compels us, that fills us, that moves us. So Lord, I pray for everybody in this room right now that if they leave here remembering one thing, they would remember that they're loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? As is always the case, we like to close our service with a benediction. And uh, the way we do this is we just simply hold out our hands to receive it. I'll raise my hands and offer this. So I give this to you. May you be men and women whose hearts are filled with the abundant love of Jesus. And may every place you go, may your school, may your workplace, may your neighborhood have a hint of the aroma of Jesus because you are there in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Have an amazing rest of your day. We'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.